Welcome back to Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School. I'm Xavier Angel, Certified Financial Planner. And today we are going to re-release one of Eric Garcia's previous podcasts. Eric, I went back and listened to an earlier podcast that you that you had released. It's titled, I Disagree with Dave Ramsey. Yes. Now, now look, before anybody gets upset, I do want to say that Eric actually uses a few of the things, the techniques that he talks about. One being the method of getting out of debt. So why I wanted to release this is because I there was one important thing that I got out of this podcast. Personal advice and finances should remain personal and not put out there for the masses. So look, sit back, relax, and listen to Stuff About Money podcasts. If you enjoy this, go out and share it and like our page. Oh, hold up, hold up, hold up. Before we, before we, uh, before we go to the episode, Xavier, do you disagree with Dave yes. Ramsey? Are you putting this all on me? No, I disagree with Dave okay. Ramsey as well. Okay, yeah. Listen to the show, y'all. Enjoy. Welcome back to Plan Wisely with Eric Garcia. I am former New Orleans radio personality John Jagay, and Eric, it is good to be back with you, sir. Likewise, Jack. How you been, man? I'm good. Just uh, just hanging in and uh, working and staying healthy, and that's all we can really ask for these days. Staying away from the COVID? Hopefully. Yeah, we're going a bit stir-crazy, looking forward to... I don't know what we're looking forward to. I say normal, but... Uh, I don't know what we're Please looking Please don't say to. new normal. It is the most overused cliche of 2020. Oh, no, that's why I didn't say it. <laughs> okay. My daughter just turned seven. And my wife did this, had this beautiful day. She has this scavenger hunt where she friends sent videos to find different presents around the neighborhood. And uh, it was just a great day. And I was brushing her teeth last night. And I said, did you have a good day? And she kind of looked at me. She goes, it was frustrating. Huh. I said, why? It was a great day. She goes, I couldn't hug anybody. Oh. Oh. oh, right in the feels. And to top it off, I think I killed her birthday present. A fish. Yeah. Oh, they never last. You change the water Dude, once and they're done. Dude, like, you buy them, they sit in this bag, and they live in this bag happy. Right. And then you put them in this beautiful aquarium, and then they, they die. You see, you should have got her a puppy. <sighs> <laughs> they last too long. They last too long. <laughs> They last too long. My wife and I got a dog a month ago, and it's the best thing ever. The quarantine's the best thing that's ever happened to dogs. We're home all the time. She's so happy. I'm convinced when we go back to work or, or people stop working from home as much, there's going to be a lot of pets with mental health issues. And I don't say that joking. Like, I'm serious. Like, these, these animals are probably just, like, loving it right now. Yeah, absolutely. But we're not here to talk about fish or puppies or... The coronavirus. We're talking about Dave Ramsey today. Four reasons why you disagree with Dave Ramsey's investment philosophy. He is a big name in the space, and uh, you've got some issues with some of his strategies. So let's jump right in. When you think personal finance, I mean, if you were to look it up, Dave Ramsey's image would probably be in the dictionary. I mean, he, yeah. he is synonymous with personal finance. And um, we're certainly going to talk about reasons why I disagree with his investment philosophy. But before we get into that, though, I want to just send a shout out to some of the work that he does. I don't want this to be a, a hate on Dave show because that's not the case at all. Mm -hmm. I think Dave Ramsey does a ton of great work. In fact, I have his, you know, a lot of his books on my shelf. You know, a lot of people are familiar with Dave Ramsey with his Financial Peace University, uh, which teaches people how to get out of debt, primarily his total money makeover, same idea, how to manage your money, how to manage your cash flow, how to get out of debt. So Dave Ramsey has done a ton of great work ton of great work mm -hmm. in getting people 
out of debt. In fact, I, I, I use some of his strategies as I talk to people about getting out of debt. But when you're advising the masses, when your voice is being heard by millions and millions and millions of people on an issue as personal as personal finance, <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult to get nuanced, right? So you can't just give blanket advice to millions of people and it be appropriate for millions of people. And that's where I kind of start differing from Dave Ramsey. It is in every financial disclaimer in the history of personal finance. Individual results may vary. Now, here's what's interesting. You talk about disclosure. So Dave Ramsey used to have his investment licenses. Okay. And I was watching an interview with him, or it, was, it might, have not, might not have been an interview. It was one of his YouTube videos. And he says he gave up his license so that he didn't have to be regulated. So he could speak about investments without regulators having to... Um, Vet everything he says. Exactly. So where, where Dave Ramsey can give, quote unquote, investment advice without anyone looking over his shoulder. I can't get on a podcast. <laughs> I can't get on a YouTube video and give unsubstantiated opinions about investments. I can't. Right. Because I've got people looking over my shoulder with every word that I say. So that, to me, that's a little bit of an issue to where someone can get on the radio and give investment advice without any sense of regulatory oversight. Yeah. So that's problematic. Uh, and in the same video, you know, he does have his real estate license, which is how Dave Ramsey made a lot of his money in real estate. Mm -hmm. um, and in the same video, he says he maintains his real estate license because there's a, a lot less compliance or disclosure necessary with it. So Dave Ramsey knows how to get out of debt. I think some of a lot of his advice, I agree with a lot of his advice on that. Some of it's a little, little bit suspect to me. I think he ignores a little bit of human uh, emotions and human behavior. It's a little, you know, hard to live on beans and rice for seven years without any, <laughs> without, without any, any enjoyment. But I mean, that's just Monday in New Orleans, right? Red beans and rice? For seven years straight? I can't do it every Monday for seven years. Never mind every day. Every day's a Monday? That sounds awful. We can throw in some gumbo and some jambalaya in there. But the point is, um, he's done a lot of good work. But again, I think his investment philosophy is a little bit suspect. And we're going to jump into that. And I'm going to point out four very specific issues that I have with his investment philosophy. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about the disagreements, there's a couple things that he says related to investments that I do agree with. Okay. And you can go read Dave Ramsey's investment philosophy. You can go Google it. He's got a whole page on it. Sure. So I'm not, I'm not kind of pulling these things out of, out of the air, but I do agree. Dave talks about investing for the long term. Mm -hmm. I think whenever you invest in the stock market, you do have to have a long term perspective meaning I'm not looking to make a quick buck. I'm not looking to day trade and find the next hot stock. Sure. I'm not chasing stock tips. <laughs> Generally, it does not end well. You know, it doesn't. What's, what's interesting is people love talking about the wins, but they don't talk about the 10 losses or the, or, the, or the 15 losses, right? I tripled my money in this one stock, but lost all my money in these other six. Yeah, you meet somebody at a cocktail party, they're not talking about uh, their massive hits they've taken in the market. No, it's just, man, I bought Zoom right at, you know, I bought Zoom in January and then Corona hit and then like I made all this money. Okay. I bought Zoom and Netflix stock and look at me now. <laughs> yeah. So, that doesn't make us investing, uh, uh, you know, we're investing for our lifetime, right? We have a long time ahead of us and investing is for the long term. So those one time big hits, you know, when, when you average them out with the losses, doesn't work out. Uh, he also talks about, investors' worst enemy is oftentimes themselves. Yeah. And I agree with that. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. In fact, I was having a conversation with uh, another advisor, 
And we were discussing that our challenges is not necessarily in making investment decisions. It's managing expectations, managing investor expectations, mm-hmm. right? Because people have expectations. They think they should be getting more or they think something should be different than what it is. So we have to manage these emotions, which, which ultimately are setting their expectations. So I do agree with that with Dave. And we've said this many times before, Eric, that there is such a tie between people's money and the emotional component of it. It's something that you really have to sometimes place amateur psychologists and manage when you're dealing with people and their finances. Yeah, that's a, that's a license that I don't have. So I can say whatever I want because I'm not regulated, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, no. Uh, he also talks about diversification. This is going to be one of the points of disagreement. But in theory, I agree with diversification. The idea is don't put all your eggs in one basket. Right. Don't put all your money in Zoom. Right. A year or two from now, who knows what's going to happen with them? I think Zoom is kind of like Kleenex, right? It's, it's, At this it's point, like Band-Aid. Yeah. yeah. Like even if, uh, you know, if we're going to do a Microsoft Teams call or a Google Hangouts, it's like, hey, you want to do a Zoom call? Yeah, let's go to Google Hangouts. Right. It's kind of like just become that brand becomes just the, the, the common term. Yeah. Yeah. I think they did a good job branding themselves there. And finally, he talks about working with managers or mutual funds that have long track records. Mm-hmm. I like track records. I like to see a manager or a fund or a portfolio that has history to it. You can see how these managers have performed in different market cycles, how they do when the market was good, how they do when the market was bad. And I do agree with that. So, All that to jump into our four points of disagreement. You ready? Yeah, let's start. Number one, Dave says that you should expect to get 12% on average return on your investments. That seems high. Yes and no. Okay, so you may have components of your portfolio that are performing 12%. He gets these numbers. He's not making these numbers up. He's looking at stats. He's looking at historical market returns. So these are not numbers that he's just uh, making up. The problem is we can look at historical time segments in the stock market and say, hey, look, this is what it's performed, so that's what you should get. Well, that ignores a handful of factors. Number one is humans, we have a finite timeline. Mm. Right? I don't have 75 years of an investing time horizon. Right? So my investment decisions are going to be a little bit different than just taking a, a, a broad stroke and seeing what the market has done um, historically. Also, what this ignores is stages of life. Yeah, It ignores the fact that I'm 40 right now, I have, and we're, we're talking about this before the show, we're, we're, we're both young, we have a long time ahead of us. We have a high capacity for risk. Right, because we can bounce back if something happens. Exactly. We have a long time to be able to bounce back, so we can take more risk right now. However, that does not necessarily mean that we have a high risk tolerance. Okay. I have a high capacity of risk. I can afford to take on more risk because of my age, but generally speaking, I am not an aggressive investor. I tend to be a little bit more conservative. You might have the time to bounce back from something, but you might, back to the emotion of it, you might not have the stomach to absorb a 30 or 40% hit when the market goes down. Precisely. So you have the 65-year-old who has a low capacity of risk, right? Because they're not accumulating anymore. They might have retired. They Mm -hmm. can't add to their investment. So their capacity to take on risk is a lot less than mine, but they may have a higher risk tolerance than me. Right. So it's your risk tolerance versus your capacity for risk based on your age. There are two different things. And if you remember, we've talked about this several times in the shows, the three questions that I ask before I design a portfolio, mm-hmm. it addresses both risk tolerance and risk capacity. What's the purpose of this money? Long-term, 30 years from now, that kind of addresses capacity of risk. But what's the likelihood that you're going to need this money? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a high likelihood that I might need it. That's a risk capacity question. And then what's your stomach for risk? That's a risk tolerance question. 
So both of these things have to be taken in consideration. And throughout our lifetime, throughout the investor's lifetime, those will change. So where I'm younger and I might be more aggressive and I might be averaging 12% on my money, as I get older, my capacity for risk is going to change and I might shift to things that might not be as aggressive. Therefore, I'm not going to get as high of a return, which is anecdotally or, or, or practically, that's what we see. We see people who are aggressive today and then tomorrow they're less aggressive. Got it. So if I'm putting together a financial plan for you and we're using a 12% return for your plan, I'm setting you up for failure because we're not going to get 12% on average every year for the rest of your life. Got it. So I think what that does is that sets people up for failure. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, because you have unrealistic expectations. Exactly. So that's kind of managing those expectations. So that's the 12% average investments that I disagree with, which kind of leads to the second point of disagreement mm -hmm. that he talks about. And he says that when you retire, he says that you can withdraw 8% of your portfolio value year over year comfortably. Okay, that does seem a little high also. It's, it's very high. So when we look, we talk about withdrawal rates, like what's a safe withdrawal rate so that your portfolio will last you over your lifetime. So let's work off of a 30-year retirement, 25 to 30-year retirement. So you retire at 65. And you live till 85, 90. 85, 90. So we're looking at about what's that 25-year yeah. retirement period. What Dave is saying is you can take 8% of your money out every year for the rest of your retirement. Well, most people in the field will say, well, you know, a safe retirement rate to guarantee, to give you the highest probability of success is somewhere in the 4 to 5% range. Yeah, if you're talking 20 to 25 years, that's how that math would work out, even if the money does grow a little bit while it's in there. Absolutely. So there's something we call sequence of returns, which is really important. Okay. So over your retirement, let's say 25-year retirement period, and you can average, well, I'm just going to take this number up, 8% on your money over time. There's multiple ways you can get to 8%. There's not just, it's not 8% every year, right. year in, year out. You know, you're going to have negative 20, up 10, whatever. So there's multiple, there's many different scenarios to get to that average return. If you retire in a scenario, let's say like 2020, if you decided to retire in January Oof. and all of a sudden you're in a portfolio that dropped 35%, that's going to have a huge impact on your retirement income, especially if you're abiding by an 8% withdrawal rate. I can tell you right now, you will run out of money. Yeah. But if you retire at a market that is up, then there's a higher probability that you're going to be successful because your first early withdrawals are going to be in, in up markets. So this is where sequence of returns comes in because you're talking about a starting point being up or down. Exactly. So just a very broad 8% withdrawal rate that doesn't take into consideration your risk tolerance. It doesn't take into consideration your mix of investments. It doesn't take into consideration the year that you actually retire and what the market's actually doing. It ignores tons of research that regulated people have been doing for many, 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 many years. A little bit of shade. <laughs> Bless his heart. <laughs> there it is. There it is. You wanted it. You got it. You got it, Jag. Bless his heart. Got the bless his heart. Okay. So the 8% withdrawal rate is unrealistic. It sets people up for failure. It sets a false expectation or a bad expectation that people have in terms of what they can take out of their investments. Mm -hmm. It dramatically reduces their probability of not having enough money the rest of their life. Got it. So that's point two that I disagree with, Dave. You ready to hit number three? Let's do it. Awesome. So David Ramsey, David, I call him David. It's like you're lecturing him. David, I don't agree with what his, you're saying here. <laughs> his mom is probably the only one who calls him David. That's my brother's name. So David, 
Uh, so Dave Ramsey promotes only mutual funds. Okay. You should only, your market investments should only be mutual funds. Now, I don't have a problem with mutual funds at all. Right. I like mutual funds. I've got clients in mutual funds. There's nothing inherently wrong with mutual funds. The problem or the disagreement I have is when you say you should only invest in mutual funds, to me, that restricts or limits people. Again, it sets a false expectation. So mm -hmm. really quick, what a mutual fund is, it's a collection of individual stocks, generally speaking. Sure. Okay. Um, he promotes only stock mutual funds. So it's it's a way to take a small amount of money and instantly diversify it, right? So I could take $1,000 and I can own 400 companies or own a mutual fund that owns 400 companies pretty quickly. You can't do that with $1,000 if you were to buy individual stocks directly. Agreed. Okay. Okay. So he speaks out against ETFs. We're not going to get into that right now. He speaks out of uh, any insurance products. Um, there's some good reasons why he does. Uh, he speaks out against uh, separately managed accounts. So he speaks out against individual stocks and mutual funds is the only way to go. Uh, and at that, he promotes what we call loaded mutual funds or commission-based mutual funds, mm -hmm. uh, which tend to be a little bit pricey. You know, if you invest, a, uh, for every dollar you invest in the mutual fund, you're going to pay an upfront commission or an upfront load is what they call. Now, again, nothing inherently wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But when you say... It's the only way you should go. You're making a pretty broad statement about what's in people's best interest. So what's in my best interest might not be in your best interest. Got it. That's one of the regulatory uh, codes that I've got to follow as a fiduciary for my investment clients. What's good for you is not good for the next guy. Yeah. So to make a broad recommendation is problematic. Mm -hmm. And when you're buying commissioned mutual funds, you tend to be limited to one investment company. Right. Because those companies will give you discounts, or we call them breakpoints, based off of how much money you have with the company. Mm -hmm. So I can't buy this mutual fund from this investment company and then that mutual fund from that company and get the discounts. So again, from a best interest standpoint, if I'm selling you company X mutual funds and I want to sell you another mutual fund, I'm going to have to stay in that world of company X so that you get your discounts if I'm selling you commissioned funds. Got it. There's other type of, you know, we, we use mutual funds in advisory accounts where there's no commissions, where clients pay an advisory fee, an ongoing investment management fee, so we're not limited by this company or that company. We can go find, if we're using mutual funds, which we don't always, uh, we can find the best in class. Yeah. Right? If I want to put you in a large American growth mutual fund, I'm not going to be limited to company X. I can go to company Y if they've got a better performing product. Also, with mutual funds in non-retirement accounts can be problematic, especially for higher net worth individuals and people who have a substantial amount invested because mutual funds are inherently tax inefficient. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to reduce capital gains and to manage capital gains out, which capital gains ultimately will get taxed to the investor. Yeah, um, Sometimes as ordinary income tax, depending on how long the securities are held for. So they tend to be tax inefficient. So that's something that um, is problematic for me if someone's investing. And I see this all the time. People have substantial amount of money in taxable investment accounts in mutual funds and they're paying. You can't avoid capital gains. I mean, capital gains isn't always bad, right? Sometimes it means you're making money and you're growing your assets. Yeah. But in a down year, if the market's down, then all of a sudden you get tax the 1099 saying you owe taxes for capital gains in your mutual funds. You're looking at it saying, How, wh why do I owe taxes in a mutual fund that was down this year? That's because the mutual fund company could have sold something that it, that it had gains in and it passes it on to you. And it's very difficult to plan. So the point is, mutual funds oftentimes are inherently tax inefficient. 
in these taxable accounts. Got it. Okay. Using only mutual funds, mutual funds by definition are diversified, but it's still in the broader sense of it, mutual funds are not a basket you want to put all of your eggs in. You might. And again, I'm not downing. Mutual funds are a great way for people who are starting to invest. Some of the other investment options have higher minimum limits. So mutual funds you can get in with, with a smaller amount of money. If all you ever did was invest in mutual funds, you're not necessarily doing yourself a disservice. And one of the things Dave Ramsey says, and, and I agree with this, is his goal is to get people who otherwise wouldn't invest to invest. Okay. So if you're investing in mutual funds and you're listening and, oh, Eric says mutual funds are bad. I'm not saying mutual funds are bad. No way. I personally own some mutual funds. Right. What I'm saying is what's good for person X is not always good for person Y. Therefore, this advice is, to me, it's, it's irresponsible to say you should only do this when you're speaking to millions and millions of people. Fair enough. Because personal finance is nuanced. It is personal. What's good for me is not good for you, and so on and so forth. So the fourth point, and, and actually, I think that this is maybe one of the more, I'm going to say dangerous pieces of advice Okay, from Dave Ramsey from an investment standpoint is what we call in the investment world asset allocation. That's fancy for saying the types of mutual funds that you own. When I say types, like what type of asset classes, big companies, small companies, American companies, foreign companies, and so on and so forth. Okay. So one of Dave Ramsey's principal, uh, I would say philosophical statements that I agree with is diversification. Sure. And what Dave Ramsey will say is, again, this is off his site. I'm not making this up. I'm not using my words. He'll say there's four different types of asset classes that you should invest in to reduce your risk, to diversify your assets. Okay. Mm -hmm. Number one, growth and income companies, which he describes as large companies. Yeah. Second, he talks about growth companies. Third, he talks about, so you should invest in a growth and income mutual fund, a growth mutual fund, an aggressive growth mutual fund, and an international mutual fund. Okay. So these are four mutual funds that you should invest in to diversify uh, yourself. Here's a problem is one, right off the bat, 100% of his recommendation is you should be in equities or stocks. Ah. So we talked about risk capacity and risk tolerance earlier. Mm -hmm. If you're a 65-year-old person who's getting ready to retire, who's got some concerns about being a 100% in stocks because when the stock market drops 35% like it did you know, in the first quarter or, or earlier this year as a result of COVID, and you watch your retirement savings that you spent 30 years building up Ugh. drop by 35%, pretty terrifying if you're 100% equity. So one of the ways that we can manage risk is by not investing in 100% equity. So right off the bat, Dave Ramsey, and this is why I say it's borderline dangerous advice, you're in 100% equities. And if you don't have the risk capacity nor the risk tolerance to be in 100% equities, this is a terrible mix. Yeah. And I want to just kind of go a little bit deeper here really quick. So he talks about growth and income companies and growth companies. I have pulled up on my screen here, you can't see it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna talk you through it. Two mutual funds from a popular mutual fund company. I'm not gonna say the name, sure, but one of it has the company name and it's called Growth and Income Fund, and the other one that I have pulled up is called the Growth Fund. Okay, right. So these are two separate asset classes that are gonna provide diversification, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to read you the top ten holdings of the Growth Fund. And then I'm going to read you the top 10 holdings of the growth and income fund. I think I see where this is going, but go ahead. Okay. All right. Diversification, which I agree with, means you should diversify your money and not have it all in one place. 
Okay, so 50% of your money would be in two of these type of mutual funds. So top 10 holdings of the growth fund. You ready? Mm -hmm. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, Visa, MasterCard, Home Depot, Netflix. Now, if you're accounting, that's only nine because there's two share classes of, of Alphabet, which is Google. Right, Alphabet owns Google, yep. Okay, so that was the growth one. Now, you don't have to write these down, don't worry. It's gonna be pretty obvious where I'm going. This is the growth and income fund. This is your diver This is one <laughs> of your diversified funds. You ready? Yep. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Johnson and Johnson, Alphabet, Facebook, Verizon, Procter and Gamble, Alphabet, Visa. Off the top of my head, I'd say about half of them are the same companies. Five or six, yeah. So, is that diversification? Nope. Mm, not necessarily. Now, let me take it one step further. He recommends international. Now, when we get into the international space. It's not as simple as saying, go buy an international fund. International, including the US? Are we talking about developed international countries? Are we talking about international, including the US? Uh, are we talking about developing countries or developing? So there's a lot of, it, it, it's a lot broader than just saying international. Most international funds include the US because we're global, we're part of the world. <laughs> right, yeah. And if you were to look at a lot of these international companies that own US companies, there's a good chance that some of these companies will show up in that fund as well. So the point is, this is not a diversified portfolio. You're 100% equities. Mm. You're in a portfolio that is going to fluctuate, that's got a lot of volatility. And if there's one thing that we know, the stock market will reward people who stay invested. One of the ways to stay invested is to be in a mix of portfolios that is consistent with your risk tolerance so that when we have volatile markets and you look at your portfolio statements, yeah, you're going to lose some money, but it's acceptable risk to you. It's a, it's an acceptable loss to you, meaning you're expecting it, right? Yeah, I expect to lose money if it's volatile. That's what happens. But instead of 35%, it may only be 15%. And you can't do that typically in a portfolio that Dave Ramsey would invest. That's why I think it's dangerous because this type of investment portfolio, if you're not invested towards your risk tolerance and you you see some of this volatility, you're going to jump ship. You're going to get out and say, I'm going to wait and get back when it's better. Human nature. It's human nature, right? We talked about managing human expectation. And what's really interesting is we invest with emotions. We tend to get it wrong most of the time. Yeah. When we invest on emotions. And like there is tons of research that shows how time and time and time and time again, the average investor gets out of the market at the wrong time, right? out of the market at the wrong time is when, when it's lower. Angel investment advice is buy low, sell high, but human nature is to buy high and sell low. And the statistics and the research shows that. The average investor has a very poor track record. Mm -hmm. And Dave Ramsey's investment advice doesn't help the average investor. Now, to Dave Ramsey's defense, he'll say, stay invested. Don't be an emotional investor, okay? Right. That's good in theory, but in practice, we don't see that. So there is value to having an advisor who understands your emotional behaviors to help you stay invested, to create a portfolio that's going to keep you invested, to talk you through market downturns like this and, and kind of keep, when, when things are really good to keep you, man, I remember having conversations last year when the market was really good Yeah, with some friends and some clients. Like, why, why do we have this fixed income in our portfolio? Man, the market's doing great. The market's doing great now. Now, who's looking like a hero? <laughs> well, this is why we have it. And some of these people might be people who listen to Dave Ramsey. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Again, it comes back to managing expectations. So mm -hmm. I think his asset allocation advice misses the mark uh, greatly. But it really comes down to, in the end, Eric, is what you said at the top, which is that 
personal finance is personal, and he's talking to a large audience and giving generic advice. But someone like you, in your practice, you are going to work with people's individual situations, their risk tolerance, their risk capacity, and just getting an understanding of what they want to do with their money and finding the best solution for them individually. So if somebody wants to contact you, what are the best ways to do it? Website's always good, www.plan-wisely.com. You can, from there, you can contact me via email. Uh, my email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at plan-wisely.com. And if they want to call you, Eric? 504-218-5479. I should mention I'm watching Eric, and you are in your office right now. I am in the office. All right, Eric. Pleasure as always. Take care, my friend. Appreciate it. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Insurance services offered through Garcia Financial Group, LLC. New Century Financial Group, LLC, Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., and Garcia Financial Group, LLC do not offer tax advice or tax services. Please consult your tax specialist for individual advice. We make no specific comments or recommendations on any tax-related details. Entities listed are not affiliated.